You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 287 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. I got a couple of donations. Uh, it's been a while now. I should have mentioned it earlier, but I keep forgetting. Doesn't mean I'm not uh, in gratitude. Uh, but anyway, uh, thank you, Andrew, for uh, giving a donation. And also, thank you to Charles uh, for giving another donation. I appreciate it. Uh, you can donate to the podcast if you go to nationalalchemist.com and uh, you can find a PayPal link there. Now this episode is going to uh, look at Shiva and Hinduism, I guess you could say. It's mainly going to be about a chant. There is a chant I often sing to myself when I'm walking or driving or cleaning the house. I've talked about it before, particularly in episode 148. But in this episode, I want to discuss it a bit deeper. Anyway, the chant goes... Anyway... Maybe I don't pronounce it uh, perfectly, but it doesn't really matter when you're chanting. The melody uh, you use for a chant can be anything. I mimic the melody that Jay Utal uses for this particular chant. You'll hear this version later in this episode. But here are other examples. There are two different translations to this chant that I've found online. One translation goes like this. Chant the name of Lord Shiva, dancing to the rhythm of drums. Shankara, Lord of Giriya, destroys the fear of the cycle of birth and death. The other translation that I've found is this. Shiva, destroyer of evil, bestower of good. He holds the crescent moon on his forehead. Lord of Parvati, who destroys our bondage to worldly existence. Hear his anklets and his drum as he dances the dance that is the play of the universe. Now I'm going to go into uh, this uh, chant, uh, discuss what it means. And I'm also going to talk about Shiva and about his wife. Uh, and by doing that, I hope I'll give you some insights into Shiva, into this chant, 
and into concepts regarding uh, life, death, and reality. So there is a, a point to this episode, but it's not clear, not even to me yet. I just want to share on the podcast what rabbit hole I've been uh, digging myself into recently. Now, in the first translation uh, of this chant, it is Lord of Giria that is chanted. And in the second, it's Lord of Parvati. And basically, as far as I gather, Giria is the Hindi version of Parvati. And uh, so it's, it's the same person that's mentioned. In the first uh, translation, it's Giria that's mentioned. And in the second, it's Parvati. Uh, but when you chant, you the, the chant I'm using, you use the name Giriya. And anyway, Parvati or Giriya, she is the mother goddess in Hinduism and the wife of Shiva. In other words, if I understand it correctly, the line in the chant that goes, Lord of Giriya destroys the fear of the cycle of birth and death. Well, that implies that love destroys our bondage. To worldly existence. Some argue that love is something you do with others. And that other people are a big part of our worldly existence. But true love liberates worldly existence. So perhaps love is beyond our world. Something more pure. Something that is not limited to other individuals. Because that would amplify your own ego as an individual. It's like that Rumi poem where he goes something like, uh, and I paraphrase, uh, he goes something like, uh, love without the need to connect. You know, that unconditional, unlimited, eternal compassion and love, regardless if the thing you love knows that you love it. See, that's different than uh, uh, love you see in a romantic comedy, because that's all about connecting. I'm talking about a deeper love. That doesn't need a connection. It's an unconditional, unlimited, eternal compassion and love. Regardless if the thing you love knows that you love it. Another aspect is the concept that Shiva's wife brings balance to his being. Because uh, Shiva is the destroyer and uh, Giriya is the goddess of fertility, love, beauty, harmony, marriage children and devotion as well as the goddess of divine strength and power so you always got to have the yin and yang but but who is this shiva you you might have heard the name before and you might know everything about shiva but uh, for those that don't let me explain a bit more shiva is in hinduism And Hinduism is not like Christianity or Islam. Hinduism is composed of many different, you could say, religions. But for the sake of making this podcast not too complicated, let's just say Hinduism. Anyway, Hinduism. In Hinduism, Shiva is one part of the trinity of gods who are responsible for the creation, upkeep and destruction of the world. The other two gods are Brahma and Vishnu. Brahma is the creator of the universe and Vishnu is the preserver of the universe. Shiva's role is to destroy the universe in order to recreate it. Hindus believe that Shiva's powers of destruction and recreation are used even now to destroy the illusions and imperfections of this world. 
paving the way for beneficial change. According to Hindu belief, this destruction is not arbitrary, but constructive. Shiva is therefore seen as the source of both good and evil, and is regarded as the one who combines many contradictory elements. So I can relate, because sometimes I feel I'm full of contradictions. Shiva is uh, represented with the following features. Shiva has a third eye. Mm -hmm. The extra eye represents the wisdom and insight that Shiva has. It is also believed to be the source of his untamed energy. Shiva often is portrayed with a cobra necklace. And this signifies Shiva's power over the most dangerous creatures in the world. Some traditions also say that the snake represents Shiva's power of destruction and recreation, since the snake sheds its skin to make way for new, smooth skin. The trident. Often you can see Shiva holding a trident. The three-pronged trident represents the three functions of the Hindu triumvirate, which is Brahma, Vishnu and Shiva. Crescent moon. Uh, Shiva wears on his head the crescent moon. And the moon is connected with Soma. And, and for all you psychonauts, Soma could be some sort of psilocybin mushroom, DMT or cannabis. No one knows for sure. So uh, already with um, the, the symbols I've mentioned for Shiva so far, are, they are all very psychedelic or slash alchemical. Third eye, a serpent, a trident, a crescent moon, Soma. <laughs> I mean, Shiva sells itself if you're a psychonaut like me. And, and even though Shiva is the destroyer, Shiva is usually represented as smiling and tranquil. You see, destruction doesn't have to be evil or bad. We'll get to that, hopefully. Uh, Dance is an important art form in India and Shiva is believed to be the master of dancing. He is often called the Lord of Dance. And as the translation in the chant mentions, uh, it mentions uh, dancing a lot. So that makes sense. Shiva's most important dance is the Tandav. And this is the cosmic dance of death, which he performs at the end of an age to destroy the universe. But Shiva is more complex than this. What you have just heard is kind of the physical form of Shiva, like his avatar version down here on Earth, uh, how you symbolize him. But Shiva is more than symbols. Shiva is the embodiment of grace. Shiva is everything that exists. Shiva is considered the great yogi who is totally absorbed in himself, the transcendental reality. Shiva is the lord of yogis and the teacher of yoga to sages. The theory and practice of yoga in different styles has been part of all major traditions of Hinduism and Shiva has been the patron or spokesperson in numerous Hindu yoga texts such as the Isvara Gita, literally Shiva's song, which is a book I highly recommend. Let me quote it. You are the material out of which Everything materialized the world. <coughs> yeah. Yeah, think about that. Uh, Shiva is the primal Atman. Or Atman, I'm not sure how you pronounce it. Atman? 
and that means uh, the soul or the self. So Shiva is the primal Atman of the universe. Shiva is everything and Shiva is nothing. Most of all, Shiva is a mystery. And I find Shiva beautiful. As an individual, as a teacher, as a god, as a concept, as an idea, as a consciousness. Shiva consciousness. A few texts such as the Atarvashiras Upanishad uh, mention something called Rudra. And it asserts that all gods are Rudra. Everyone and everything is Rudra. And Rudra is the principle found in all things. It's the highest goal, the innermost essence of all reality that is visible or invisible. Interestingly, the concept of soma, which is some probably some sort of psychedelic substance that was used uh, in the past, that we don't know what it is. Uh, the concept of soma and rudra came to be identified with one another, as were soma and the moon. So if soma is some sort of psychedelic substance, then perhaps the psychedelic experience is the innermost essence of all reality that is visible or invisible. So if you drink soma, you will experience rudra. Something to consider. Maybe that is how it is. But we don't know. Because all these texts are, you know, they're so old and it's so hard to decipher what they really meant. In short, you can say that Shiva means that which is not. Sounds like a pretty cool god to me. It's very different from the ego-driven thou shall not have any other gods but me that you can find in the Bible. So Shiva is basically means that which is not. Everything comes from nothing and goes back to nothing. Everything comes from Shiva and goes back into Shiva. The chant uh, or mantra uh, Om Namah Shivaya is one of the most popular Hindu mantras and the most important mantra in Shaivism. It means O salutations to the auspicious one. Or it means uh, adoration to Lord Shiva or universal consciousness is one. Om Namah Shivaya. Om Namah Shivaya. Om Namah Shivaya. Om Namah Shivaya. Anyway, I've talked at great length. So uh, let's get back to uh, the point of all this. Um, Now when you know a little more about Shiva and and his wife, uh, let's look at that chant again. Um, I'm going to take the liberty to do a third translation, combining the two translations I mentioned earlier. So my translation would be, Shiva, the destroyer, lord of Girya, liberates our bondage to worldly existence. Shiva dances the dance that is the play of the universe. So it is important to understand that in Shiva's destructive abilities, he is also a creator. 
By destroying, he creates, because nothing in this world is permanent. I'm not sure I can fully explain why I think this chant is not only powerful to chant, but also very soothing. And there are many aspects. First, regardless if you believe in reincarnation or not, we all have a sort of bondage to this earthly existence. Either we don't want to be caught in the cycles of birth or rebirth, or we don't want to die and lose our life. In both cases, we are in bondage to worldly existence. To be liberated from this is, well, it's liberating. Having children makes me feel even more in bondage to this world. But as the chant goes, Lord of Giria liberates our bondage to worldly existence. So Shiva's wife liberates us from our bondage. For me that implies that with unconditional love, which is eternal, one would never lose the connection with those you love. If you truly love everyone equally. And especially if there is indeed a cycle of death and rebirth. Because that means that your children could have formerly been evil psychopaths and former enemies. But with unconditional love such things don't matter. Also if we consider that everyone is a part of everything and that Shiva is in everyone. Then we are indeed all one. And whatever you feel for something else, you indirectly feel for yourself. Which also means that whatever you do to someone else, you do to yourself. So it goes back to the golden rule. Secondly, uh, this chant, or to chant and sing praise to the divine dance in itself is beautiful. I see this chant as a celebration of the ever-changing universe and could also be seen as a celebration of the cosmic joke. After all, the chant refers to the the play of the universe. It's not the the drama of the universe, it's the play. And I know a play could be a drama. (laughs) But uh, the way I interpreted it is that uh, it's it's a play. A theater play, if you will. Because if sorrow and pain is only part movements of a dance, then it's kind of funny that we took it so seriously. The dance is, in essence, the only thing constant. Like Alan Watts said in a speech I've played before. But we missed the point the whole way along. It was a musical thing and you were supposed to sing or to dance while the music was being played. Dancing, when you dance, do you aim to arrive at a particular place on the floor? Is that the idea of dancing? The aim of dancing is to dance. I enjoyed chanting this chant and I've enjoyed looking deeper into it as well. 
I've been chanting this chant to myself on occasion for years, and even before I tried to understand what I was singing, I kind of knew it. it. It rang true to me. And that is the beauty of chants and mantras like this one. But I'm not an expert or a scholar on any of these things I've been speaking about. So I'm going to play a little mix now that deals with Shiva. It deals with simulation theory and science. Now in this recording you might hear the term Mahadeva, which is simply another name for Shiva. Enjoy. It is one of the curious oddities of our time that we talk so much about the scientific method as if it is one singular entity when point of practice it is anything but. The ultimate linchpin in science is decided not by how we go about doing it, but how well our hunches, observations, and results tally with the universe we observe, and in turn how such intellectual lurches compare and contrast with other competing stratagems in terms of yielding more, not less, information. The very word science is derived from Latin and is rather open-ended and simply means knowledge. Hence, it is along these lines that the legendary and acerbic philosopher Paul Feraben long argued that science isn't really a method at all in the strict sense of that term. Rather, it is the label we use to describe the testing and verifying of differing ideas and maps we have about the world and allowing such templates to strenuously compete with one another. How we actually do science is invariably much sloppier than we might at first suspect, but which every scientist worth his or her salt knows too well. Astronomy, to take just one obvious example from the sciences, isn't so much about disproving anything as such, but rather about discovering vast new vistas. There's nothing destructive per se when Edwin Hubble looked through his telescope in the latter part of the 1920s and observed a redshift in the electromagnetic spectrum whereby light from distant stellar objects appeared to be moving away from his point of inquiry. Hubble's record only served to confirm what the Belgian priest and physicist George Lemaitre had deduced two years prior from Einstein's general theory of relativity, which is that the universe must be expanding. Yes, it is certainly the case that reductionism is part of science, but so is almost all human endeavors, including the very use of symbols from Mandarin Chinese to Sanskrit and vocal sound waves to communicate and explain complex features found in nature. The truth is that the human drive to gather knowledge and then openly compare and contrast such theoretic and observational templates is an expansive field and one which allows for all sorts of imaginative pathways. In other words, science is a quest with many methods and not just one. Analogously, science is like the Hindu god Shiva, who is often depicted with multiple arms, signifying his illustrious power to take on different forms and act in manifold ways. While it is certainly the case that one aspect of his nature is destructive, it is also true that Shiva is depicted as a transformer. Accordingly, Shiva has numerous aspects ranging from beneficent to frightening, but one of his more popular aspects is as a universal dancer, perhaps best illustrated artistically in bronze cast as Nataraja. There are in some innumerable ways to gather knowledge about the cosmos we inhabit. What makes science so powerful is that it allows for such findings to be publicly aired and scrutinized and tested, not only with the world it is trying to understand, but with other vying alternative models which differ from each other. Perhaps science's greatest contribution 
is that at its best, it's open to being wrong, and thereby can change. An often told joke concerning Albert Einstein perhaps best reveals the tentative nature of science and its findings. A student asks, Dr. Einstein, aren't these the same questions as last year's physics final exam? To which Einstein replied, yes, but this year the answers are different. And so I want to talk to you about a fascinating thing, a scientific postulation, which a Russian scientist, Kardashev, made in 1964. At that time, scientists were already thinking, you know, that there is such a big, huge universe, so many galaxies, so many planets, so many stars, so many suns, and there must be conditions on the other planets which are fit for life like they are on our planet Earth. But we have not yet contacted any other life from other planets. So what could be the reason? And going into this theory, Kardashev said that, well, planets which have life on them, sooner or later, if that life is intelligent, will grade themselves uh, into a civilization. And then he said, I will put a grade to civilizations. And the method to do that will be to see how much of the natural energy they have been able to harness. Because if a life form can harness a natural energy, then it is a sign of a great intelligence and will lead to technology, will lead to, you know, futuristic things. So planet Earth, our planet, is not even grade one as yet because a grade one civilization would be that which has harnessed all the energy available in the planet. At the moment we are harnessing fossil energy you know like coal, carbon, petroleum and we've just about moved on to solar energy. You may have seen those plates we have them in houses also which tap the solar energy or wind power, we have those modern windmills which run across deserts and things like that. But we are very far from harnessing everything that is available to us. So today as we speak, we rank 0.7 in grade one. Maybe in a couple of decades, we will harness all the energy available to us in our planet and we will reach grade one fully. Now, a grade two civilization, Kardashev postulated, would be one which could harness all the energy of its sun. And to do that, it would have to be capable of building a sort of sphere around its own sun, and which is called a Dyson sphere, and be able to tap all that energy, all the solar energy from its sun. Right now, it's not conceivable for us. How would we ever, you know, build such a big structure around the sun? Uh, how would we ever get the right material and the right technology to do that in outer space? But he said that there are civilizations which would be able to do that. So a civilization which can harness all the energy of its sun, not just of its planet, would then be able to use that energy for making very, very superior spacecraft and very, very modern things. 
then there would be a grade three civilization. A grade three civilization would be one which can harness the energy not only of its own sun, but of all the suns in its galaxy. And that would be, you know, something really tremendous. So while the example for a grade two civilization is given like the TV serial we used to see, Star Trek, you know, interstellar going from planet to planet, a grade three would be something like Star Wars coming from one galaxy into another. That would be really tremendous. Then there is a grade four civilization. And that is one which can not only harness the energy of its galaxy, but of the entire universe. That would be a very, very superior civilization. And there's a grade five civilization also. And that is one which the scientists postulated would be able to harness the energy of a multiverse. Right now, we, we can only think that there is one universe. We can't think beyond one universe. That's infinite to us, but maybe, you know, in dimensions of time, which is the fourth dimension, or even higher dimensions not known to us, maybe there is a multiverse. So that civilization would be able to harness the energy of the multiverse. Then there is grade six. Grade six would be able to harness the energy of omniverse. We can imagine, all right, there might be more than one universe, but an omniverse, a universe within a universe, a universe outside a universe, a universe parallel to another universe, a universe in another dimension at the same time. And we have a concept, something like this, in ancient Hindu mythology of Lord Indra, the king of the Devtas, who used to make an Indrajal. That was a Maya Jal. He had the power to manifest a universe in which if it was like a flower and it had droplets, each droplet contained the entire universe. And within that, the drops again contained another universe. So it was mind boggling. That would be something like an omniverse. But there is grade seven also. And grade seven would be one who is beyond all this and can tap all the energy or give it energy or create it or dissolve it. And that would be God. Interestingly, in the chakra system of the yogis, they say that there are seven chakras in the body, not physically, but there are energy uh, points in the body. And we start with the lowest chakra, which is our physical needs, our uh, security needs, and we go higher and higher. Then we come till the heart chakra, which is emotions. And then we go to the third eye, the Agya chakra, which is intuition. And the seventh chakra is on top of the head, the crown of the head. It is called Sahasrar 1000 or the unlimited. And that again denotes God consciousness. So can you see a parallel here? But Another thing which I found very fascinating, what has this got to do with our Mahadev? Well, we know everything. It has everything to do with Mahadev. But interestingly, in the Shiva Sutras, which are revelations of Shivji to his Rishi Vasugupta, in which Shiva tells him 
about what is the plan of life, what is the connection of man with God, how did he come and how will he go back or how will he reconnect. There is a sutra which says, Bhut Sandhan, Bhut Prithak, Vishv Samghata, which means, Bhut means, Bhut means two or three things, but here it means element, like earth or fire or water or air or ether. Bhut Sandhan, that Shiva can connect two elements together. Bhut Prithak, he can break one element into two. And he can do anything with anything, Vishwasamghata, to create a new world, put something in order. You know, we don't only join things to put things in order. Sometimes we separate things, sometimes we join them and put new things together. So that is a fascinating parallel. Some people also think of Bhut in our local language as ghost and Mahadev is also called Bhutanath, Lord of the Spirits. Well, although the Sutra does not mean that, but such is the glory of Mahadev, that even if we think of Bhut as a spirit, well, Shiva has the power to conjoin, to break and to put together a new one. And Bhut is also a tense, the past tense. Well, again, Shiva can definitely go into the past because he's Mahakal, the ultimate time traveler, and bring things from there into the future or go into the future and come to us with the things from there. And which again is pretty much what Kardashev postulated about grade five, six and seven civilizations. Think about it. Kardashev said this in 1964. Our scientists are working dexterously on this. But Shivji said this to his rishis thousands of years ago. Isn't that fascinating? Last time we spoke of Shiva and science and I told you how about 60 years ago, a Russian scientist called Kardashev postulated a theory in which he said he could grade civilizations depending on their capacity to harness the energy of the universe and how each grade successively became a stronger civilization. And so there was one, two, three, four, and right on the top at seven, seated was an omnipotence which could harness all the energy of the entire universe or any universe ever known to us or any that is ever going to come. And we compared this to Shiva, Mahadev, seated at Sahasra, the crown of all things. So this time, to take Shiva and science a little further, I'm going to talk to you about simulation theory. Simulation theory is a very interesting thing which has come up in the last 20-30 years. It has been always there for about 100-200 years because great philosophers think far ahead of their time. So maybe it was there even in the old civilizations, maybe 1000 years ago. But it has come 
to be well explained and well postulated in the last 20, 30 years. And this theory says that everything we see, the world we live in, including ourselves, is not a reality, but simulation. That's right. This theory says that maybe we are not flesh and bone as we see or as we think. Maybe we are a very highly advanced computer you know, simulation. Just like we used to have video games about 30 years ago, which were very base. And then we progressed to better video games and then even to better video games. And now we have video games in which the characters almost have a mind of their own. So these scientists say that maybe in the future or in the past, it actually doesn't matter. I'll show you how. So let's say in the past, there was a civilization which grew so advanced that could simulate the whole life of all its ancestors. Or in the future, if a civilization became so advanced that they could make simulators on computers which were almost like the real thing, they would then try to make what is called ancestor simulation. They would create a simulation in which they would put their ancestors, let's say from a thousand years ago, to trace back effectively what the ancestors may have done. But supposing that has already been done, whether it was in the future and we are just a simulation, or whether such a technology had been achieved in the past. And we who think in the, we are in the future are actually just a result of, you know, a simulation, somebody's dream. So this also makes you realize the concept of time travel. To think of time travel straight like we do in linear terms is difficult. How can we go back to World War II? Or how can we go back to the you know, time of the Egyptian kings? Or how can we go to the battlefields of Kurukshetra with Lord Krishna talking to Arjun? Or how can we see the time when Siddharth Gautam left his palace to become Buddha? It doesn't seem possible. And then we have scientists who talk about space and time and how there are black holes and maybe we can go through the black holes. But in the simulation theory, if everything is just a simulation, you know, just to rewind and fast forward, it would not be really a problem. It would be pretty possible. Now, what does this have to do with Mahadev? Lots. Because we Shaivites fondly claim that Mahadev has known it all, always. He is the greatest spiritualist, but he's also the greatest scientist. Now, before I come to Shivji, let me tell you that not only Brahmaji, the father of gods, was accredited to have Manasputra, to be able to create children from his mind, from thinking. He created Daksha Prajapati like that. And then this sort of power went to some rishis also. There are some rishis who are able to have been able to do this. Which leads us to think that this power or this prowess 
was a sort of technology which was transferred to others to be able to do it. And if this is possible, then that means that Shiva, who is the greatest yogi, the greatest meditator, must have thought of this so many times. And he may have been able to do it himself. But Shiva is one who, even if he is capable of making a simulator, he is one who upholds life, he affirms life. He does not want us to think of ourselves as a simulation. And we come to the Shiva Sutras, where the Rishi Vasugupta, when he goes to Lord Shiva and he says, Explain me this whole concept of the world of yourself and myself. So the first thing that Shiva tells him, Chaitanya Matma, you are the soul, you are spirit. But then what happens is, Yoni Varga Kala Shariram, the cosmic womb reduces you to a body and you start thinking that you are only the body. And then he says, Gyanadhishtan Matrika, but seated in the middle of this world of your knowledge, of the knowledge of bodies, objects, science, like history, chemistry, geography, all these subjects, is Matrika, the unknown mother. She is Shakti. And this word Matrika, from the Shiva Sutras, brings us to a very close parallel to the simulation theory. About 20 years ago, there was a film called The Matrix that was made about the simulation theory. And in The Matrix, they first showed how a person who thinks he's a normal person like you and me is actually in a simulation. He's actually a sort of computer program. And his real self is lying somewhere else to be tapped so the theory is very extensive and what it means is that the purpose that we serve if we are only a simulation is either somebody else's entertainment or maybe even a source of further energy for them like a battery. So that is a terrifying concept. But Shiva does not say that at all. Now when you compare the word matrix with matrika it's very similar. The matrix means the weave, the unknown syndicate which has taken over your life and you don't even know it. And matrika means the mother who has given you birth with along with Shiva but you do not know her as yet. And if you get to know her then this life will start changing in the sense that you will know your place with Shiva, you will know your place with this world, with this nature, with the mountains, with the oceans, and you will start living fully in devotion, in awareness. And therefore, when the scientists say that we have to decode the matrix to find out if we are a simulation or not, Shiva simply says, you don't have to do any such big, difficult things. You only have to know Matrika, the mother, my Shakti, Durga. You only have to be a good person, have the faith that you are 
a bona fide creation of God and one day your devotion will be fulfilled. One day your awareness will become much higher, you will be enlightened, you will know Chaitanya Mahatma, you are the great luminosity which has come from Shiva himself. And that gives us a hope that we are not really a simulation, we are a very proud creation of Shiva and he is trying to make us on each day more like himself, more godly. So while the scientist says today I can make a video game which is absolutely real, today I have AI, artificial intelligence and tomorrow we will have post-humanism which is scientists mingling with artificial intelligence to put it in our brains and create robots and make us like robots. While that is very interesting, Shiva's method is far nicer, far more palatable to us that we are humans created by a God who is making us like himself every passing day, who is making us more like Shiva himself. So this is a fantastic parallel between the scientist and the spiritualist and I hope that both of them work together and go on to a fabulous world for Shiva and for themselves. Om Namah Shivai. Om Namah Shivai. Om Namah This audio was lifted from the YouTube channel Shali Gulhati, Shiva and Mysticism, as well as a YouTube channel called Neural Surfer. So I hope I piqued your interest into looking more into Shiva. I will for sure look into it more than I have up until this moment in time. I want to close this episode with this chant I've been speaking about, sung by Yehu Tal and mixed together with the poetry of Rumi as read by Coleman Barks. I've played this mix before and I find it to be a truly beautiful uh, mix of Rumi, Yehu Tal and Coleman Barks. Uh, and I hope you feel the same. As always, please subscribe to my YouTube channel and share the podcast in social media. Hara Jiva Shankara, Shishanka Shekara, Harabam, Harabam, Bam, Bam, Bolo. Freedom is in the mind. Harabam, Harabam, Bam, Bam, Bolo. Hara Shiva Shankara, Shishanka Shekara. Like every other day, we wake up empty and frightened. Don't open the door to the study and begin reading. Take down a musical instrument. Let the beauty we love be what we do. There are hundreds of ways. To kneel and kiss the ground.
Would you like to have revealed to you the truth of the friend? Leave the rhyme and descend into the pith. Fold within fold, the beloved drowns in his own being. This world is drenched in that drowning. I am so small I can barely be seen how can this great love be inside me look at your eyes they are small, but they see enormous things. Pale sunlight. Pale the wall. Love moves away. The light changes. I need more grace than I thought. Shiva. Uh... 